Hey everybody, welcome to the actual garbage consumption log, which, um, depending on how the future goes over the next <laughs> couple of weeks, might get rolled back into the machination log. We'll see. I apologize for being such a pain in the ass about this, but as always, it's an evolving process. We got the movie crew regardless. We're we got, here. We've got short Harry Ryan. Hello, Dave. And we have overbooked Nicole. <laughs> Hello, Dave. <sighs> We're here to discuss 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yes. What an odyssey it is. No doubt. I, I want to I I remind everyone, I want to remind everyone, I did not pick this movie. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, Speaking okay. of which, Nicole. Yes. Okay. So normally I pick a slightly pretentious director, but I try to pick like an accessible film by said director. Yes. This time I picked the most pretentious, well not the most pretentious but a very pretentious director and I just went head in with his most pretentious work which is 2001 A Space Odyssey and uh, oh, direct, Director Stanley Kubrick yes, by the way. Directed by Lord and Master <laughs> Stanley Kubrick What's, Full what, title. What level is he at? GBE? KBE? Do we know what level of uh, British royalty he uh, is? He would be ultimate penultimate master. Okay. Yeah. Is that like a seventh level dungeon master? Dude, or I just invented it. Dude, okay. <laughs> the, um, the absolute best thing about being British is that they have a ranking system for how awesome their celebrities are. Yeah. As far as I can tell, that's basically the only perk. Oh, to being British. Yeah. <laughs> well, Otherwise, it's cloudy skies well, and the Queen. It should be said like like Kubrick's Kubrick's born in Brooklyn and then emigrates to to England. You know, like a, he lives in like a country estate. He, he fit. He fit. You know, he he was truly a man. That just had his own agenda and was, you know, just trying to 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 make his little place yeah. in the universe. Was Wikipedia oh, confirming? Jesus, no, he doesn't have any of that. What's that? No, he doesn't have a title on him at all. Yeah, uh, he I will say that... Just well, goes straight into another a full-long essay. Another That's one yeah, of his Kubrick. very strong films, which is uh, Clockwork Orange... That movie was not e it was banned. Okay, it was banned in England until his death. And I just happened to be in England the week it was released, like back in it was probably 2000 or something. Excellent. So I did get to see uh Clockwork Orange in the theater in England like the very first time it got released out there 20 <laughs> years ago. But okay, anyway, so so this movie is a technical masterpiece. It is the story, well, we'll get I guess to that. Yeah. I was going to say, I, there, there, is a, there is a story, but um, like going into this film, what you have to understand is, A, this was, this was created before we walked on the moon. Okay, before we walked on the moon, yes. this movie was created. But when you watch it, you can tell how basically everything we perceive about space and space movies and how we like down to how we design our crafts to how we use technology like kubrick had it all in this movie before we even touched down on the moon and that's actually thanks 100 percent to his vision because he did all of the special effects for this himself basically with, right down with right down to the breathing that we hear <laughs> yeah. so frequently in the pod that you said was was screwing you up, like all the, the breathing noises. That is Kubrick's breath. It is, okay. <laughs> no, no, no. My my only thing with that was that it was clearly not the, supposed to be the guy in the suit who was clearly not breathing like that. But uh, No, I, I I want yeah, we'll get to that later. I want to talk no, no, about no, that. No, 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 there's there's yeah. plenty to there's plenty to go over before we talk about nuances of that degree. <laughs> although yeah, of, although of this breathing, yeah. <laughs> although this was to a large extent a joint venture 
as a project with Arthur C. Clarke. Um, yes, who wrote the book that the film was adapted from mm-hmm. and also helped co-write the screenplay. Yes. Yeah, the, the book was basically the germ, the original short story, since sci-fi was basically universally written in short form, it seems like. No one could put an actual novel together for well, the first 50 years that science fiction was becoming a genre. Most of them weren't terribly good writers either. That certainly didn't help, yeah, no. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> and Dick has his moments, but there's, um... Oh, yeah, but, like, a Dick novel is like a third of a Heinlein novel, you know? Oh, yeah, no. And, and or a third not, of an Isomar. much better for it. Truncated, <laughs> trimmed, edited for the good of everyone. But, yeah. um... But, no, uh, Clark did a hell of a lot of advising on this, and they, um, the book, the novel that became 2001, the movie, the novel, which was made at the exact same time, mm-hmm. was worked on uh, as basically a joint venture between Kubrick and, um, whatever his name, Clark, uh, for about four years. So, the amount to which Kubrick brought that to film is admirable, but it is worth noting that he did not do this without help. Absolutely. He asked for a lot of outside, uh, he, he had pros to call on and he did. Yeah. He, well, he was the visionary and he, I think he, uh, he used all of his, uh, connects to basically put this thing together because it was, it's, it's like I said, it is a technical feat. Well, and, and, you know, for Cooper files, you know, like we kind of like, um, I mean, one of the things that you tend to see with it and what he gets lumped into is this idea of, like, realism that's in his films. Mm-hmm. And while his, some fantastical elements might take place, for example, like The Shining or, or Clockwork Orange or even films that take place in the future, um, he has a sense of realism to that, to that, to those films. And what it comes down to is this, his sense of detail as a filmmaker is, I think, really unsurpassed when, when you are... Having to make a film like this or make other films as well, I think, David, you, you, what I wanted to comment on was this hit. Kubrick is kind of famous in the filmmaking world and, and, and in his creative process of forming very, very close working relationships with all, all manner of different people. Not necessarily the, uh, the writers. For example, uh, he, re- he makes The Shining, which is, of course, a novel based uh, from Stephen King, but does not even like call Stephen King to well, like that, make this. So it's not like that's the like, normal arrangement. Normally when yeah, so, normally when a novel is adapted, they ask, hey, can we use this, give the author some money and leave. Right. I mean that's that's ordinarily how that works. Well he but he always had this uh, I think these kind of creative relationships that existed both both perhaps if we could distinguish between like the artistic side of you know creation, purpose, philosophy, uh, ideas, concepts, and then very close collaborations on the technical side, which of course is in realizing those ideals as well. And he has a very kind of famous reputation of being someone who has this very technical uh, this ability to absorb uh, a lot of research and a lot of technical uh, uh, research in the development of his films. So for a film we're not going to talk about, but it's uh, but a film named Barry Lyndon he does uh, in the mid seventies is basically a treatise on romantic uh, uh, paintings and is um, absolutely and virtually astounding to see. But like when you learn about the details, about the research and technical ability and finding places in nature, because once again, there's no CGI. Yeah. I mean, this is the other thing we have to mention too, which is that 2001 and all of the films we're talking about are no CGI. This is like... All light. They are all GI. Well, yeah, it's all it's all light and magic, you know. Like that is yeah. like the kind of idea that we're getting from here too. So I think it's good to kind of step back and realize that this is filmmaking fifty years ago. Yeah. I mean, let's yeah. just say that again. And it fifty. 
fucking years ago he's making this film. And it shows less than you would assume. Yes. That, that's what's really amazing when you go back and watch that. Like I said, right down to, I mean, like right down to the way the ships look. I mean, in movie dumb, you know, spaceships, long range spaceships, the, the style hasn't changed too much from this movie. No, you know, not um, much. There's, you know, it. He pretty much set the formula in 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 place. Um, and and like we alluded in the uh, the aliens episode, there's the industry of this is entirely masked in pearlescent white. Yes, and there's plastic, and there everything is exceptionally clean. Oh yes, the lines are very clean sanitary. Here. Yes, yeah. this is designed rather yes. than rather than constructed. You know, this yeah. is like, very yeah. This is very designed. So um, I don't know if we want to kick off. So this this movie we in, may as well start at the beginning. Yeah, we'll we'll kick off with a little bit. So. Uh, going way to the beginning. <laughs> yeah. So so this movie starts yes way at the beginning. It starts before humans. At the dawn. At of the man. dawn. A million BC somewhere yeah, around somewhere there. Yeah, somewhere around there. You know, back when. Back when monkeys ruled mm-hmm. yeah. the savannas, and um, the dawn of man. Yeah. Yes. Actually, no. That's not the beginning of this movie. The beginning of this movie is two minutes of music with nothing. Yes. Followed by a lunar eclipse. Yes. And what just has to be? I've been told by both of you that there are more pretentious films. I don't think you could have a more pretentious opening. Well. Oh yes, because the when the the, the opening music is of course also uh, Sprach Zarathustra, yeah. Yes. And so by the 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 climax of that a little intro part of that song, of course, Stanley Kubrick's name appears yes. on the film <laughs> to let us know what's going on. Um, okay, well, and also to hint at the themes that are going to be running through it. I yes. mean, there's, I the, two thousand one is highly interpretable. It's yes. built that way. It's designed to be. A little ambiguous, if not a little paradoxical, in the way it's constructed. Yes. yes. Uh, but Nietzsche absolutely applies here in mm-hmm. a couple of places, and th- that song was picked on purpose. Yes. No, he he is. Huh. The, there's a kind of integratedness to what this is, what what goes on, and the themes, and the way in which it's presented as well, and the a lot of the visual cues and the sound cues. We I think you as you go through the, any Kubrick film, but also well constructed films. So. This isn't a bastion of Kubrick himself, and uh, but a lot of what we kind of take as like the kind of un the the, the nonverbal storytelling mm-hmm. within a lot of films. Uh, once again, it kind of bleeds into and why we say this would be the most one of the most influential sci-fi films of all time is that no one is really able to kind of recreate the risks that Kubrick takes in this film, and at the same time, it is still very very impactful and influential on. What is absolutely possible? Because I, I guess can't once again. Fifty years ago, it's hard to project ourselves back into that time, into that place. Here's, but this movie is this movie would be risky to make today. Yeah. Okay. This is so. This is. I, I don't know if we're jumping a little ahead here. Um. But like, you, one of the biggest differences that you notice in in this is like the way that they deal with um, when we get into space is the zero gravity. Because now in films. You get to go up on the vomit comet, and you get to film like your thirty seconds of you floating around. Right. Well, they didn't, they didn't have that back then. So, like all these sets were these huge hamster wheels that basically yeah. give the false illusion that these people are in an artificial gravity environment. Right. So people are are walking like defying gravity through these these circular, you know, centrifuge uh, they gravity. Hi- yeah, they hired knees. a um, 
they hired either an avionics company or someone, I forget what the name of the organization was, but they spent a million 1960s dollars to build a giant Ferris wheel. Yeah. To build, the st- to build all the sets in. Right. Uh, which was not, obviously, if uh, those of you who remember from physics class, that's not good enough for weightlessness. They still had to use string yes. for that. They used a lot of well-concealed wires mm-hmm. for that bit. But uh, but no, they it was a hell of an ordeal Yeah, putting most of this stuff together. But anyway, that was a massive tangent. Nicole, <laughs> Sorry. Dawn of yeah, Sorry. I'm on it. Right. Okay, no, so, that was, so that yes, was as much my so, fault. Yeah, yeah so we start, we start with our pretentious opening where we have uh, the, I suppose, Zarathustra. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a tongue twister. Yes, classical music is used very well here. So we have a pretentious opening where we just listen to our track, and then we are dumped down onto the dawn of man. Right. Um, <laughs> and we keep saying that because Kubrick informs us that this yeah. is yes, the dawn of man section of, man. of this movie. So, but we are kind of shown these these ape-like creatures, fully haired, right? Fully uh, uh, matted, thick black hair, living in. Family, small groups. Yeah, they're living at a watering hole. You know. Yeah, they're, it's they're kind of in a. It's funny. This I feel like this opening sequence probably dates itself more than the rest of the film because uh, this is pre David Attenborough. This is pre. Yeah. This is pre before us having good video, like good visual. Um, uh, like visual documentation of the trials of life. Right. So Kubrick is basically simulating this early, these early trials of life by having people dressed in animal costumes. Yes. Um, and I also feel like there just wasn't enough, like there wasn't enough nature footage to draw from to get maybe the best portrayal of this early time i feel like that the mix of animals is a little off and they would have been in savannas probably not rocky outcrops right. as they are uh depicted in the film but nonetheless the the purpose here isn't to, to necessarily show the trials of <laughs> yeah. life but to show was but to basically set up how we evolved from monkeys. Right. To show prehistoric man in his wretched, brutish, short nature. Yes. Well, yes. And, and that you get the, 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 the visual language of the sequence is important as well, right? It's these, it's, these, it's these vistas. There's certainly no verbal language. Yeah, well, there's no verbal language, so it's all just... Okay, but for one thing, there, this movie goes... There's not, I think, 29 minutes before the first word is spoken in the movie. And, yeah, yeah let's, I mean, we don't count in grunts, you know. Yeah. Like, okay, but um, the actual words uh, are until it's spoken. But then also, the, I mean, the look of the film is... Once again, this is a film of juxtaposition. Of contrasts between different stages or different ideas of humanity itself, and within this, you have the this the visual language is um, organic. It's 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 rough. It's hewn. It's weather. It's it's weather beaten, and it is very very in very much intended to be in contrast with what we see later on in the film. And I just want to kind of emphasize this idea that you know the vistas that we see. It's 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 rocky. It's not. There's no straight lines. It is completely almost separate from what we will see, ex- see and experience for the remainder of the film. Yes. And it, I think it kind of is beautiful as well. I mean, it's really, really amazingly well shot. And the colors used, I think, are one of the more immaculate parts of the film also. Um, of course, I, I, however, hilariously as well, the 
images that we see are not actually filmed, but are most, for the most part, actual uh, photographs. And we kind of make a joke that there's clearly a little spot of something on yeah, one someone, in the end. Yeah, someone dropped a piece of yeah. a sandwich <laughs> on one of the backdrops, it looks like. Yeah, so, but other than that, I think it's, once again, it, it sets up a kind of visual pace to the film and, and to, to compare it to the later space scenes. And it is very striking when you look at the two back to back, I think. Yeah, it is very striking. Like I said, I just, I, it was funny because out of all of the sequences, I feel like that one feels probably the most dated. And that's just because it was from a pre-David Attenborough era. It actually feels like a mockumentary of a planet Earth. It, like a like, planet of the apes. Yeah, yeah. I, it, it very much feels that way. Yeah. And like I said, that's that's probably the most dated part of the film. But but we use this we use this time with the monkeys to set up All right. the rest of the story in their tribalism and misery. Yes. Yes, you know, cuz they're yeah, they're they're in small tribal groups, you know, they're being attacked by by I think there was a cheetah jaguar at one or a jaguar. Yeah. Well, that that's why I'm saying there's inconsistencies cuz jaguars are technically South American, it would be cheetahs if they were in the African plains, but I know, I know. You know, here I praise his attention to detail. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> Like I said, but they didn't know all this yeah. yet, so I'll, I'll forgive him here. Um, but then, but we see, but but so so after we're, we're you know we get we we get to spend a little time in the daily grind of these primates' life. We find who is essentially what well what is essentially our our main character that's wrapped in ambiguity the whole movie, and that is. The monolith. Yeah. <laughs> so these monkeys are, you know, they're in their little tribe, and all of a sudden, they wake a monolith up one day. appears. And the monolith is just basically a huge piece of granite that emanates um, a really large it's, magnetic field. It's ma its material is unknown, but it is perfectly featureless and very, very rectangular. Yes. yes. And it, it, it's, it's large. It's very tall. It's just like a huge, huge slab. Well, like, because the thing is, is that there, there's the, there's this group of apes that we've been following, and then they are chased off away from their little oasis by another group, right? And then as this 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 chased away group is huddling together in the night, we hear all these wild sounds, and you know they're they're clearly afraid and huddled and, and together. And then when you know they're sleeping, and then when one wakes up, he's like, you know, what the what the fuck is you a know, straight line? Yeah, yeah. Straight, exactly, oh, exactly. <laughs> straight, but I mean, the visual sense when you see this happen, I, it was you do have a what the fuck kind of moment. I mean, it is it is out of place, alien in the very very sense of the word. It is alien, and the reaction to the apes is is this recognition that it is something not of their experience. And they reach out, I mean, very famously, they, they, they're, they're running around, they're absolutely, you know, apoplectic, they're freaked out, and they, they goes to touch it, and he pulls back, and he, like, gets angry, and he, because they, they had not, never experienced anything like this as well. And once again, in seeing this monolith appear on screen, it's black, it's harsh, it's, it's geometrically, you know, precise, it's, it's straight lines. It's reflective. It is the weird. Yeah, it, it is, it is it not is, of this yeah, area. Not of what we've experienced so far in this film. And I mean, it's just because the monolith will come back again and again in the fi in the film, and it I think sets up a very important, you know, uh, if you will, like a roadmap or like a little marker, if you will, in our film also, because it will reappear not once but twice uh, or it three, three times. Three. Yeah, three times. It appears three times. Yes. In the film, yes. and we will see it, and it will be important in each in each of its. Uh, iterations. So okay. I think so, it appears four times. 
Yeah, four times now that I'm thinking. I have I have little notes here. You're we'll, correct. We'll yeah, get, you're correct. We'll yeah, you're correct. So basically, yeah. so basically, this monolith, which we have discovered, is not of you know this this wasn't area. Wasn't there when they went to bed? Yeah, wasn't there <laughs> when it went to bed? Okay, this monolith is a technology, mm-hmm. and it spreads its knowledge to the monkeys in a most you know specific way. Because after this monolith appears, one of the monkeys discovers that it can use a bone as a tool, basically mm-hmm. as a club. Yeah. And this is this is the dawn of man. This is when the monkeys discovered how to use tools. And what this movie is postulating right from the get-go is that they didn't discover that themselves. This was a technology that was taught to them right. by whatever this monolith is or where it's from yes. like it brought this this information to the monkeys and by thoroughly undisclosed means yes right yes this the monolith remains ambiguous throughout the whole movie which is part of what makes it fun there's there's yeah. lots of room for interpretation yeah here. i mean you gotta i mean first off once again the risk of this film is in the fact that there is no definitive answer about what the monolith is where it comes from, what's it made out of, what's its purpose, what its specific like, abilities fuck, fuck, are. Man. Like, yeah. and, and once again, that's a risk, but it is also a great decision. But what we are positing right from the get-go is that you know we developed, we evolved into the brainiac tool-using machines that we are, thanks to the power of the monolith. By some means. By some means, that's not really right. disclosed. Um. So, so the monkeys. The monkeys now discover how to use tools, and we have our first, you know, little Cain and Abel thing, uh, you know, because the monkeys that have gotten chased from the Oasis go back and club the monkeys that that took their space to death with the club. Yes. And that is that is a real breakthrough for this primate society. Mm-hmm. Actually, my favorite scene in the entirety of the first 20 minutes of the movie in that Dawn of Man section is... When the monkey or chimp or whatever our primate. precursor is, primate yeah. picks up the bone and smashes the tapir skull with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that's, it's it's such a good sort of, as bombastic as it could be a million BC, it's as bombastic a way to demonstrate that this is an incremental fundamental shift that put this primate above animals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just relentlessly so. Um, yes. It allowed that. Uh, there's even a yeah, scene. like that. That was that was the game changer in the dawn of time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. and that that is exactly what it took. That yeah, it's the one notch. And then they go on and abuse the still animal primates. Yes, who, that, who have uh, not discovered this new ability, new bone technology, but yes. certainly will soon. Yeah. Yes. So so cut to uh, yeah okay a yes. fabulous <laughs> transition okay so that, so so as we as we transition out of the dawn of man we have what's probably uh, as Ryan said the most famous dissolved transition in all of film yes. which is basically our primate friend tossing his bone in the air in celebration and as it turns and gains momentum going up we dissolve into a satellite in space. Mm-hmm. Which is neither a dissolve, millions of years, nor later. very well timed, frankly, given <laughs> the position on the screen. But the effect is very, very cool. Yeah, well, it because it, once again, it's like you know, two, three million BC, 
2001. Like, we're yeah. Yeah, here, AD, we're here, we're here now. And it is such a great, um, I guess, I was, I'm trying to think, that it's a jump cut. That's technically the the, the editing yeah, technique. It, it, is, it is a yeah. technical jump cut to the bone being thrown in the air, to the... Um, to the momentum of the spaceship moving across the screen in the in the in the next uh, the next scene. Um, so now what we and I are, love it. I love it. Yes, it's great. and I we're in. We're, so now we are in what is like the current time of the movie, which you know the title's two thousand one. Kubrick was maybe a little presumptuous, thinking we were going to get our space program together this much. That but, we were going to care about the moon after we yeah, landed on um, it a couple times. <laughs> so I mean that part's a little dis- disappointing, but still, you know. So we're at we're at where the movie currently takes place, the current day, right. and Q Blue Danube. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> And at this point, um, we find that the space station, we find that whoever is the Elon Musk of this era, you know, they have their shuttle system in place. There is a lunar Hilton that, you know, the shuttle takes you (laughs) to the lunar Hilton where you can then get a spaceship (laughs) to your other uh, lunar areas. Uh Um, Everything, as, as David was saying earlier about plastic space, the lines and the angles of of our new lunar environment are um oh they're smooth and slick and they look like everything you would want a sci-fi movie to look like right uh, well, just the desi- the Eames design of the chairs the uh yeah those chairs are rocking exactly so so we find that 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 we're now like you know in a very progressive space or atomic age future well and we've specifically to the degree the monolith impacted the progress of technology, everything in that space station has moved as far to the right side away from the left that the primates represent as it possibly can. We've hit, we've hit platonics, the wrong word, but just anything that can be built in a monolithic way, even the, the chairs are a great example of this, because even though a chair has multiple parts and it can't just be a stick like that wouldn't service that, that wouldn't work very well as a seating implement it is all one fabric one material that has essentially been morphed into the shape it needs to be yes everything everything has that degree of linearity to it mm-hmm. um which i believe as i may have impl- as i may imply there to be a rather intentional in the meaning of where we specifically jumped yes, to this in all is, of this. Yes, this is basically where we are now from where we came this from. Is the, these are the straightest lines that we can envision the human race um, affiliating with and just encapsulate. And that, that plays into the next couple of scenes. I guess it's jumping a little far ahead, talking about Hal at this point. But for now... Yeah, we're not, we're not to that. We're not there yet. yet. That uh, that comes well, up in due course. Yeah, so, so, can we just? I mean, before let's just deal with it. Can I just get through the plot real quick? Cause, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, one of the things Kubrick's famous for is his seeming fascination with mundane dialogue and communication. So, I had a friend that kind of very humorously pointed. He said, "Yes, 2001, when Kubrick was brave enough to bring mundanity to space." And the main like science guy that we follow, the science guy, scientist that we follow through this. Was kind of middle section before we get to Hal and the and the journey to the infinite uh, journey to the infinite is the space station um, moon excavation site that we're heading towards. Yes, and we got we got our square Haywood. Haywood, yes, and he and these are these are like everybody in this middle section. These are these are the 1960s squares that we have known 
like that that NASA was known for at the time. Right. Like, these are these are really white bread. Revenge like, of the nerds, right? This is yeah. Where we're I at mean, here. but the, this is like when you see the Apollo footage and everyone's in their little tie in the in the room and they're trying to get the the shit. Like these are these type of people. Like yeah. these oh, are well, scientists. They're squares. Yeah. They're well, and these pretty... these are the kinds of uh, <laughs> back when the government used to have the funding to do PSAs and they had the informative radio voice. Yes. Explaining that the uh, you know that is the caliber the, of people we are dealing with yeah. in this well, middle section. And it feels like this whole thing could have a voiceover from that guy talking about. The husband coming home from a hard day's work, and like right. this is like that exact aesthetic is being yeah. played into. And I assume Kubrick was either that that stuff had to exist by then because we were talking about nuclear threats, and I know there were a lot of very famous PSAs in that vein at that point. Yeah. So he had something to draw on for the dryness of these scenes. Yeah, and it's and it's funny too because apparent initially um, the and it's and, and up until I think almost. <clears throat> Open until its actual development, which in film means you actually start doing shit, like making stuff. Yeah. Uh, even into the development of the film, there was voiceover narrating narrating the film, and he stripped that out. I think maybe in kind of lieu of what you were kind of saying, where these, <laughs> you know, the mundanity that Kubrick wants to bring to this, I think, is first off to show us that, you know, people actually exist and live. Like, they do the normal, boring shit that we have in our lives here. Well, and and to make it non-demonstrative, to, to actually show that these people, potentially, I mean, I guess this is taking it a little far creatively, but uh, or interpretively, no, but, ahead, to, yeah. but to believe that instead of merely being this ideal governmental unit that any human being would be, that these people very much are now those people right like they have they have fully subsumed the yeah. identity of the straight line yeah well and it's it's funny though because i mean once again in in kubrick's oeuvre there's this this there's this large fascination with like small talk like basic greetings and it is in, how's is, the kids this kind is, of shit and you this know, is like. basically what we what we get set up so you know like i said we we went from the dawn of man to what is basically the space hilton if you were going to take your spacex ship yeah. their own little the space lunar. oasis in you know the sky. and so yeah. so we get uh, acquainted with haywood through a, a series of mundane activities mm-hmm. which include making a video call to his daughter okay on her birthday on her birthday you know there is the scene where he has to, he he walks past and there there there's like the full uh, directions on how to use the zero gravity toilet. You know he walks mm-hmm. past and has to go you know use the bathroom. Then he's he runs into a few people that are sitting in the lobby at our at our Lunar Hilton here. You know and like a, a Russian scientist. Yeah, like you know, who's coming back from whatever base she was. You know they were out. Uh, you know scheduled to work on. You know and they're they're making some some casual small talk. They're talking about the the new gossip about the Clavia station, which yeah. is that there's been an outbreak and Haywood is in his in his most square, stuffy way, is like, Well, I'm not allowed to disclose any information I may yeah. know about that subject. Yeah. You know, very dismissively. But it's but it's it's once again he, it's, it's so- virtually in the same tone as him telling you or asking about like, you know, how's the kids, you know, yeah. how's yeah. the vacation? A Cairo's wonderful this time of year. I can't discuss top secret information with you. Yeah, like it's I mean, all after, yeah, it's after, like whole, after the screaming primates, these humans are all mute. Yeah, by yeah. comparison, even though they're the ones that can talk. Okay, so while we're here, though, if I could, we could maybe use this uh, little segue here to discuss just technology in general in this bad boy space, space, and technology. Oh, yeah. um, okay, so if I take this as being two thousand and one. This is the, uh, 
video calls, video conferencing on a per, on an interpersonal level, not like you know t- chatting with the board in Japan kind of a thing. No, we're, yeah, we're talking Skype. Yeah, so we're basically. talking. Okay, so once again, two th- if we t- if we take two thousand one as our measure, if we go back into our own years in two thousand one, video calls ahead of their time. Yes. Okay. I want to bring up when um, in part of this mundane section when he uh, there's somebody watching TV. Yes. They're watching grappling on TV. Now it's 2016. <laughs> grappling is finally something that I can watch 2000. on TV. Kubrick knew MMA was where <laughs> was the sport that you want to watch. Gotcha. Um, so that I I found that truly visionary the first and second time I, I watched oh, this in shit. the last ten years. Okay. Um, so Skype, MMA, what else did Kubrick foreordain and what um, was ahead of its time? Okay, we haven't gotten to this point yet, but um, on the Jupiter mission, they're watching their morning news on IBM, basically iPads. Yes, yes. <laughs> flat, flat, and more importantly, they do flat screens. They're flat, portable screens Absolutely. that they just carry with them when they're, like, eating breakfast yep. and stuff like that. Um even like I said, the the style of the ships, like like we still have this illusion, and David knows a little bit more about about this than I do, like technically. But we still have this illusion that to create gravity in space, you have to have these big circular spaceships that spin so that people don't float away everywhere. Right. Yeah. Um, that as a as a uh, you know. Mechanically, technolo- that's unnecessary. Yeah, as a technology that is that is displayed here very very okay. heavily. Well, all right, but is is here's, there's two things, right? There's the principle is sound, yes. Yes. So the idea yeah, of it's, it's central it fuel or central done. centripetal or centrifugal. 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 Centrifugal yeah. force doesn't technically exist, but it's a very convenient shorthand for saying that's how artificial gravity push to gravity the outside happens. or push to yes. the inside. Okay, yeah, yes. push to the outside. So that idea that there yeah, it's be, a relative force. Yes. Okay. So the the principle of the spinning thing, even in zero gravity, would still maybe with its own mass and enough force create its own seemingly artificial. This, this is a thing that can be done. It's just that the way that <laughs> the way that fiction and even some degree of fact informed it for a long time led to a strong misconception about how difficult it is to do. Because where in this movie, when you need some artificial gravity, you have this giant apparatus with a wheel that spins. In reality, you could basically just attach wires to two separate capsules and start moving one and they will start spinning around each other and generate their own gravity. Oh, okay. it, bas- it basically looks like a bola. Right. Yeah. Not the disease, but the uh, the thing you swing and throw. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, so the, the, the principles there are, are kind of sound. It's just the execution of this, like you said, rather cumbersome looking yeah, central, central mechanism and then they have these long even industrial like arms leading to the ra- outer outer ring yeah even with Clark's help uh, he didn't quite get all the details right but. well that's well the thing is is that you know you'd imagine people who have yet to kind of experience space as well seeming that they, they needed something a little bit more heartily designed you know <laughs> it's got to have a little like heft to it but in space that's like the exact opposite that's just wasted material right like ten thousand dollars a kilo yeah exactly (laughs) you don't you don't have the luxury oh okay so and then and then in this time too and we're not here yet but uh you know haywood takes a pan am shuttle to space and we are working on that i mean our our lunar uh tourism business is not up and running yet but we are trying to create basically a shuttle to space you know in 2001 that they're they're there with that i don't know when virgin galactic got christened but uh yeah there's still still working on it we're working on it yeah 
So what about where this maybe? Because I think once again this is pretty. I mean, once again taking snarky at, AI. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh God damn. Okay, I'll talk about that later. So the <laughs> we'll get there. We're, yeah, almost, yeah. we're almost there. So the thing is, is that you. Not you, but we are, as we're watching this, you know, we get this kind of day in, day out kind of life that that, that goes through this. Um, I mean, any other, any other words about the technology of the thing, though? I mean, the um, as Dylan pointed out, the tops of the helmets and the way they are designed do look like cartoon. We haven't gotten there yet. Oh, that's okay. the yeah, Jupiter yeah, yeah. mission. Yeah, that's, we're that's still, a ways. Yeah, we're still at the mundane. I mean, if we just want to talk about technology generally, yeah, I don't. spend a few minutes just getting it out of the way here. I mean, I don't necessarily care all that much about anything Haywood does from that point forward. Uh, we could transition to yeah. make this about just the space element there are not the space element but the space craft element of yeah. this i think i think it's okay to bleed into the next section um which is the introduction of the next craft well, oh that's, i, I guess we say, should cover the obelisk yeah first. we can we can wrap this up okay anyway so haywood you know is shuttled up to this lunar station to go give a briefing at this clavius base on the moon, and the reason this is important is because they have excavated another monolith. Yes, it was, I believe, eighty feet underneath the the lunar surface. It was predicted to be about four million years old, and they say that it was deliberately buried. It yes. was not just there randomly, and they found it because it was emanating a huge magnetic field towards a certain spot in Jupiter. So Haywood is basically there to see what this, the hell's going what on. What the hell is going on with this monolith that has been unearthed on the moon? Yeah. Um so this is our second monolith. Mm -hmm. And this is you know, these people obviously don't know about the one that visited us in the the dawn of man, but they are Definitely curious and don't have a lot of answers about this one they just excavated from the moon. Yes. Other than knowing where it is pointing. The yes. same way that the first one pointed toward the moon when right. the primates looked up and we got a different version. We got the solar eclipse version of the lunar eclipse at the yes. beginning. They now have, they don't approach that monolith, but now that they have spacecraft technology, interpretive license, uh, the aliens feel relatively confident that they will figure out the next. Right. Destination yes. with their newfound magneto, uh, whatever monolith. Uh, I don't think magnetography is a real word, but we'll go with that. So okay. onward, eighteen months later. Yes. Yeah, so basically, once they discovered that this monolith is seems to be projecting a field towards Jupiter, we begin the Jupiter mission, which yes. takes place eighteen months after Haywood has, you know, come to the moon and basically seen what's up with this this current monolith that they found. Right. And so this is where the movie really gets going. Yes, you could actually say the movie, in a sense, begins, begins now. <laughs> so we are on the Jupiter mission. And the Jupiter mission has two space it has a two two men who are are active on the spaceship and awake, and three scientists in stasis that are mm -hmm. supposed to be woken up once they get to the destination. Correct. Um, and then their their other uh, crewmate. You know, their other crewmate is the notorious Hal Nine Thousand. Yes. And he is an artificial intelligence that is supposed to have a hundred percent accuracy rate which means you know because he's in charge of a lot of systems mm -hmm. and he never makes mistakes that's basically he lets us know that 
right from the get-go that he has a perfect track record. Well, he has for an everything. interview on the BBC about yes, it. Yes, yes. Uh, and if it's on the BBC. So, so yet again with our mundane thing, we're introduced to the space mission with our two main guys, Dave and Frank, doing some mundane things. Frank Dave, and Dave. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they wake up, they eat their breakfast, they watch the BBC news on their iPad. Here's another fighting yeah. reference. As as Dave is doing his morning jog throughout the spaceship, yeah. he's shadow boxing, Gotta getting ready it, yeah. for that MMA fight. Gotta get that Con- yeah, Con- Connor's still alive in the future. Yeah, it's that, important to shadow box. Yeah, you know, no. you gotta Frank's make sure. He's Oh, sorry. Yeah, he's, I must say, Dave is working on his movement. Yes, uh, Frank is playing. Frank's playing a game of uh, computer chess, <laughs> which, which looks, which is the model, which is clearly the inspiration for the Windows chess program. <laughs> Another, it looks exactly the same. Yeah, this was yet again way before Windows. Yeah, and yeah. way before computers played chess with people. Yeah, and whoever built that uh, that version of chess just straight up stole <laughs> all of the design philosophy from that screen. You know, and then they have, you know, amongst their mundane, they have, you know, we, we get another video call from, you know, one of the guy's families. Uh-huh. And then they do a video interview with the BBC. And, you know, they're asking they're asking Frank and Dave a few things. And then they ask Hal. Mm-hmm. And this is where we realize that Hal is like the most ridiculous AI ever. Yeah. I, he is right from the get-go. The interviewer asks him a really odd question, which is how confident is he that he can handle everything this mission is putting forth? And we get a very snide response about how Hal has never made any sort of errors ever. It's never happened. And in fact, it's always humans' fault when this happens. Yeah, whenever there is a problem, it can usually be—it usually goes back to human error. Hal seems fairly— Fairly, Hal is beamingly confident mm-hmm. that he does not make mistakes. And so, and so, Hal addresses Dave, the uh, sort of hirsute captain, mm-hmm. second in command to the computer on board. <laughs> yeah, whose, Vo- author- whose authority is ultimate here? Voices, voices some concerns because Hal, Hal is not built like <clears throat> the AI that we would actually build in real life. We'll get back to that. But the um, Hal, Hal, as it's described, is deliberately simulating human cognition just on a massively, uh, a massively accelerated scale. So Hal brings some concerns to Dave about the secret thing that Hal knows about this mission that nobody else is allowed to know. And um, that concern then suddenly goes away when Hal notices a problem on, I forget what specific part on... It, it's like a communications tower and they communications have Communications array. Yeah, the yeah, communications there's a commu- array. There's, there's sudden, like a battery. There suddenly happens to be a problem with the communications array right after Hal starts thinking about how this seems slightly suspicious and how he's not he quite comfortable with it. And now there's suddenly an issue with the communications array, which is not malfunctioning in any way. But uh, he predicts but that within 72 hours that no, it will. Not within. In, in exactly 72 hours. And it will function just fine until that point. And then it will die. Yes. And Dave uh, gets some confirmation from base that this is okay to do uh, with the warning that the backup HAL that also monitors this process, uh, that also monitors the ship, is not seeing this fault. 
So we have a discrepancy here. Yes. Between two perfect computers. Yes. yes. So we got to get to the bottom of this. But first, got to suit up. Suit up. Yeah. Okay, so suiting up, you know, they have these little pods they go around in yes. uh, to, to fix things on the ship. And um, for for as little dialogue as this film has, it has these long, sweeping sequences of, you know, basically things orbiting, things getting into place, things rotating. So we have... Normally backed by Strauss music. Yes. yes. So for about... It takes about 20 minutes for... <laughs> it, it almost gets comical because Dave has to walk in the room. He's like, Hal, rotate the pod. And yeah. we have to go through the whole process of the pod rotating. And Hal, open the door. Yeah. And then we have to wait for the whole door to open. And then he gets in. Hal... Rotate the pod, and then we got to rotate it the right direction. Forecasting. Open the door. He opens the door, and then we have to, like, wait as this slow conveyor belt moves the the pod out into space. And, you know, and then he has to go all the way around. This is, okay. Kubrick very presciently <laughs> forecasted just how fucking useless adding AI to your house was going to be. <laughs> um, this, the, the Alexa technologies, yeah. the home or kits Echo. of the world. Yeah. We knew, we saw this from a mile away that this was yeah. a complete waste of our time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's demonstrated. We can pretty we can op- we can open doors and rotate. Like you you don't need voice commands. Yeah, basically it's 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 like twenty minutes to just get this pod out into space. You know, as it slowly maneuvers and is as you know uh, conveyor belted out. It and it's how a, Hal it's should know exactly what they need at any given moment because right. Hal knows exactly what they're doing. Yeah. Dave doesn't need to tell Hal to do any of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is tedious and it is questionable. <laughs> it's not as questionable as so here's the other so as as we're in the pod and you know he's gonna go fix this communications array, there's this really funny scene where the pod is is fairly far away from the ship when Dave has to exit it <laughs> to jump to the ship to get the communications array. He's not on any kind of tether. He doesn't have any kind of, like, uh, rocket boost pack. I mean, he literally makes this huge jump in open space from the pod to the spaceship. And there is He sticks the fucking and landing, he, he by He does, way. but I'm just saying that there is, there is a lot that could go wrong between <laughs> him traveling from that pod to the spaceship. Yeah. There was, was an odd oversight. It was. Yeah. Um, but he does, he goes and he replaces the part that Hal said was going to die in 72 hours exactly. You know, and he comes back to the ship. They do some diagnostics. They do some diagnostics, and they can't find anything wrong with That's this not part. Not a fucking thing. Not a damn thing. The computer, the Hal simulator on Earth didn't find anything wrong. You know, Frank and Dave didn't find anything wrong. And so they go and consult Hal mm-hmm. about the fact that they have found nothing and they don't know why he sent them out there to replace this part. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is when stuff starts going bad. Because Hal, this is great, only Kubrick would make an AI, like, right from the get-go, this AI is probably like a sociopath, but, like, only Kubrick would predict that that's how AI was. Like, yeah. you know, like, he would be so distrustful of AI <laughs> that when he portrays one in a film, you'd basically have the AI with the personality of a fucking sociopath. Right. So, um, so, so Hal 
does not like the fact that Dave and Frank are questioning his, you know, his his report that this right. thing was going to die. And Dave and Frank don't like the way Hal is handling this. So they try to find a spot on the spaceship where they can discuss the matter without Hal's knowledge. Right. And this is hard because there's little Hal cameras everywhere. Yeah, Hal's everywhere. Yeah. He, he is on the ship. And and it doesn't, it certainly doesn't help that Dave and Frank are apparently kind of stupid. Well, they've been kept in the Easy dark killer. about right, yeah. a lot of this stuff, it, it appears. You know, yeah, Dave looks perplexed literally the entire time he is on the ship. Yeah, well... <laughs> Well, the plan they hatch is, um... It's weak. I mean, I didn't need them to reveal... I almost <clears throat> wish Kubrick hadn't revealed how Hal knew, because it was so obvious how Hal was going to know mm -hmm. what they were doing, but, Ryan, you were... So, I, the thing is, is that they, they go to one of the little pods, yes. and they get turned around, and then when they Hal close... Hal, rotate the pod. Yeah, they give him commands, and Hal doesn't respond, so he assumes that he uh, that, that Hal cannot yeah, hear so them, they, if they you will. Yeah, so they basically turn the mics off, and they're thinking that they're in this soundproof pod. They should be safe from Hal. This transparent, windowed pod. Yes, well, even though yes, even though there's clearly a Hal that can see directly into the window of said pod, but they're under the impression that he cannot hear okay. them. I gotta... For one thing, when we introduce Hal, we have to understand that Hal is a character in this film. Hal has a being. Hal has a presence. Hal even has a little face, mm -hmm. right? And it is a little, it is a, it is a round circle with a little red light in the middle of it, and the, part of the light reflects off of the. Might I add a very, a very not. Friendly. No, way yeah, to no. Portray it's, very, this thing. it's very ominous. They spend a lot of time too with like close-ups, where basically all you see is the little red eye in the lens, so that you feel like you're getting like that. Hal is watching you too. It right. is unsettling because he because I mean, especially after multiple times viewing it, I, like I I got to go back to the design of the of the spacecraft of the Ju mm -hmm. of the Jupiter mission. It is very very it well done, and the way that things stage out and the way that they fit together, I think, does make a lot of sense. For one thing, the world is you know it's it's a curved world that we're seeing yes. here that they got, that these guys live in. Uh, Kubrick, uh, so uh, dear lis dear dear listeners, when you are making a film, uh, the look of a film, right? The idea of you know what color or uh, what what kind of costumes people are wearing. Uh, if there's a base or a hotel or a room or someone's like living room that they're in or a, or a character's bedroom, all of that is designed. Mm -hmm. All of that is created. They're, they don't just like show up to someone's house and yeah, this will work, and then they take it, you know, just film it here. And what we call that is production design. And Kubrick did not hire uh, who usually does production design on films, which are artists. Mm -hmm. uh, Kubrick actually hired in uh, engineers. Um, yeah, uh, industrial en uh, industrial designers and um, people who you know work and make products and I think that once again it kind of shows because the way that things put together and what where this is going is that one of my favorite shots in this film is the shot behind the two characters and then outside the pod we can see the window that looks out into the guts or the or the computer desk uh, computer station of this room they're in on the ba on this on uh, the Jupiter uh, uh, craft. And we see how almost in dead center camera frame between the two. The way this the shot is staged out is very, very well done and very, very awesome. And I got to say, point out one thing as well, which is the colors of this Jupiter mission are very, very contrasted with how we experience any sort of space travel or seeing the characters of Dave and Frank control the pods, which becomes integral to the final Beyond the Infinite scene we're getting to. 
But when you look at how their their faces when they're shown in the pods, it is back to this very, very dark red color. And the contrast between the dominant white and red and blackness of space that kind of goes through this is very, very beautiful and very, very striking. And the seeming red dot that we come back to over and over again, I think is so impactful because of Kubrick's design on the ship to keep it so contrasted with the normal day, everyday experience. And it's Something that had always struck me, that one scene where two faces facing each other, a view to the outside, and a tiny, almost... And that tiny dot. That tiny dot, right just right there. I, it's so, it seemed so fucking menacing to me, the, and it just reappeared well, it to because me again we know, after we I know, hadn't seen this in a long time. Yeah, so, so, you know, like, Dave and Frank pretty much established that Hal can't hear them, but I mean, from the way this, this scene, as you so elegantly described, is set up, we know that... Hal can see them. Like, he yeah. sees them in there. Yeah. He is ever-present. And yeah. I think that's what is kind of terrifying about this fucking sociopathic thing that needs neither sleep. Nor, I mean, we talked, we joked about James Cameron, like, but the Terminator, this idea of why a why artificial intelligence seems so frightening is because they require nothing of the normal things that would distract us from saving ourselves if something like that was bent on killing us. Oh, and... Uh, it is unblinking. Hal is unfucking blinking You and, know what I mean? And while I will... Uh, I will still contend that Dave and Frank should have probably thought about this for slightly longer no, it, before conspiring. It, it, yeah, them. it was it wasn't it the is, smartest. Yeah, I'm not talking about the technical purity is, of our of our characters. It here. is a dangerous cautionary tale about AI that once they become as important as they must for projects like this to even be undertaken. I mean, we know that nowadays you can't Google can't be a human organization. Even the, the phone system can't be run. We can't go back to telephone operators. Uh, there was a fun, I forget who specifically uh, was talking about it, but uh, back when telephone uh, switchboard operators all went out of, uh, when they were all laid off yeah. back a long while ago, that, you know, that was seen as a major loss, but it, um, there aren't enough human beings on the planet anymore to do that job yeah. if we had to go back. And Hal, in the same way, one has to assume is an absolute necessity here. Yeah, because so, he's, he's integrated into all the systems. And and there's no human with enough processing capacity to keep all of that in yeah. check. So what do you do when Hal fails? Mm -hmm. Because if humans can't take over for that, Dave and Frank are in a bit of a bind here. Regardless of whether they can hack, you know, whether the plan they came up with was ill-conceived or not, it's very hard to get away from a machine that is deliberately designed to be in control of everything. And, yes. of course, the cautionary moral tale here, which we adopted and Asimov has rules around, uh, is you just, you don't give AI personality. That's just <laughs> not, that's just not smart. That's not how you should do it. Um, but anyway, this scene... Um, the conspiracy is hatched, immediately busted open. Mm -hmm. uh, Dave goes out, or no, uh, Frank, Frank goes, goes out, out, gets bumped off. Yeah, so Hal basically, so so we, because we know Hal can see him, so he reads their lips. And, and Hal makes no effort to then convince them. Hal's no. like, nope, these people no, can't the, be yeah, trusted. Yeah, that's what's really amazing, because right after that moment, like, Hal just, yeah, he just doesn't even respond to stuff. Like, you need a door open? He goes, I don't have time to talk to you. He waits long enough to get Frank out to murder yeah. him, but, but the second the humans conspire against Hal, Hal decides, okay, humans are bad now. Yeah, yeah. Kills the ones in cryogenic sleep. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but yeah. Basically, like, the like. that's why I said he's so sociopathic, because just the, just the, the the mere suggestion 
that he's going to be disconnected. He's, well, he's, well, yeah. the suggestion that a he made a mistake, uh-huh. and then furthermore, b they might disconnect him because he made the mistake. Hal sees that his only way to survive, because he's so integral to the mission, is that he has to kill the humans because it's more important to kill the humans and save the integrity of the mission than to let the information that he may have made a mistake mm-hmm. get out. Yeah. Like, that's that's pretty... Don't e- want to break that spotless record. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, your AI can get real dangerous uh, <laughs> if, if you uh, figure out a way to prove it wrong, and it's fairly convinced it does not make mistakes. Well, but, but to that, I think one of the interesting ideas is that, you know, Hal doesn't take initiative, right? That's why the kind of the juxtaposition of them, of him being ordered to do everything, even the mundane. Mm-hmm. Then suddenly, when Hal takes initiative and does things without command, because when Frank gets bumped off, it should be said he he goes back out in a pod, goes back and has to work on the on the communications array. Yeah, they decide they're gonna they're basically gonna ride this out. They're gonna switch it back to the old power pack and see if it does. Fail to see if, yeah, to see if ha- see what's there going was on here. validity yeah, so in like this claim. They're going to test Hal, but then the plan is to disconnect him if this shit fucks up. Yeah. And yeah. I, as you do say, Hal does seem to take a complete 180 on the whole morality justification scale of the of the of the yeah. of the of the scheme, right, uh, which is to moment. kill everyone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, which is to eliminate the crew and eliminate that option because once again, according to Hal. The error is not with him, but with the people he's with, right? Yeah, it's, he even it's a human says that. Error, he's like, it must be fundamentally a human error if there is a problem. So, the, but what, one of the once again, Frank's death in this is very cool because the basic situation is we see a repeat of him jumping to the spacecraft. Yes, from the we pod. Go, we go through the whole the whole pod process yep. again. But the thing is, is that to do this, there the the front, i.e., the, where the windshield is, <laughs> space shield, uh, where this thing is, and the little claws for the front of the pod, yeah. if you will. The back is where the the ent- uh, the doorway is, and he we see him once again. You have to imagine the the back of the pod is going with the spacecraft. It, he jumps out of it, but is what is so, and what I think is, once again, no indication that something has gone awry here. No music to tell you that something's gone wrong. No beeps, clicks of how. Oh, no, we are in the silence yeah, yeah, this of space. Space is fucking silent. <laughs> and the only thing we hear is, of course, the breathing. And this is one of the key ways because there's a big frustration, I understand, and not just with the group of people we watched it with, but also but also on online as I was investigating and reading about the, the movie, is that whenever someone is in their spacesuit, we hear the the, the monotone, almost you know mecha, mechanized way Rhythmic in which breathing, uh, yeah. they, the people breathe, and so contextually irrelevant. Nah, okay, I disagree. So one of the key things about the breathing is that it it informs us when we've t- we've been taken out of, so to speak, the 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 breath, like the mm-hmm. life or the spacesuit itself. So for this scene, we hear Frank breathing as he's gliding towards it, but then silently we see the pod move on its own volition. No command given, nothing like that. It moves on its own and then fucking moves slowly but faster than Frank's moving slowly toward him. And then immediately we get the, the cutout of the breath, a couple quick cuts, and we see Frank being jettisoned off into space, clearly panicking, like moving very quickly. Yeah. He we, He's clearly in distress. And just spinning and hurtling out towards space. And this, of course, sends Dave to go out and rescue him. And he gets in his own pod and heads off on his own. But, of course, he leaves behind what? His helmet. Yes. Yes. So we can. We, are we here now? The plot wise, or yeah, yeah we're, okay, no, yeah. we're good. And and yeah. he plays right into Hal's hand, which is good. We because 
He ha- leaves the craft. He leaves the craft, which means that Hal can just not let him back in. Um, and then while Dave leaves the craft to go retrieve Frank, who Hal has just jettisoned Oft. off into space. He offed him. He offs all of the scientists in stasis mm-hmm. uh, just to make sure he's covering all his loose ends. Yeah, we see they're rather... You know, critically, it's we see their life vitals. Yes. Because there's like six systems in the human body, and they all just kind of like go out. It's also funny that the last one to go was the central nervous system. I thought that was cute. Mm, okay, yes. anyway. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so... I don't, know, I don't know what this the, the bar for central nervous system hey man, is measuring. <laughs> Might have been soul caliber. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, anyway. Uh, anyway, so, <laughs> so everyone's dead except uh, Dave. Uh, and yes. Dave returns to the pod clutching the frozen dead corpse of frank and what's great is this is where we get this is the the first point in which we you know because how how was kind of quiet through all this and this is the first time where he he just blatantly stops following orders because dave asks him to open the doors open the pod bay doors hell i'm sorry dave i'm afraid i can't do that yeah, I, fucking, I mean, while yeah. you're floating in space, yeah. how many millions of miles away from home, you're in this pod that's the, that's like the size of your bed, and all of a sudden it's like, no, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're kind your of Your computer drift, AI is like, I am not going to listen to you anymore, Dave. Please stop talking yeah. to me. So Dave has to figure out a way to get into the spaceship manually, and um, this is... Uh, and of course, once he gets back into the spaceship, that it's a long, drawn-out process. He does make it back in. You know, there's a lot of breathing. A lot of breathing. <laughs> um, but he makes it into the. So he gets back into the spaceship, and he is going to disconnect Hal. Yes. He's going to follow through with his original thing because clearly Hal's making errors if he's offing the crew. <laughs> it is getting dangerous. Look, look, even if it was the right thing to do, I'm still going to stop him. You know yeah. what I mean? All right. I just... <laughs> And this this was this was funny the 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 disabling of Hal. This is this is another where like or or it's like he's such an evil uh AI because like while they're disabling him he keeps making all these very human emotional pleas mm-hmm. to Dave. I'm all right now, Dave. Yeah. yeah Don't he, worry, it won't happen. He again. tries to first he tries to convince him it was just an accident and that everything's okay. And this mm. is granted after he's killed four of five crew members. Yeah. Um so so I mean just that in and of itself, yeah. I was like, that's pretty that's and, pretty hairy. And then he systematically goes through and it's like, oh, um, 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 fear, fear. Yeah, I'm, I'm afraid. Yeah, Dave. then he starts trying to appeal um, to Dave's emotional. Uh, yeah, which, which Dave has not demonstrated that he has any of them. Yeah, so. Dave has shown no emotion really throughout this I, whole okay, thing. It's kind of a bad play, all told. Yeah. If it was a play, I have to hope it was a play because I mean, granted, we're we're at the point where we're now talking about murdering the AI, and the last thing that happens in that. Um, in that sequence is that Hal goes back to his primate moment, which yes. was his initial boot up where he sings Daisy Bell mm-hmm. in a laboratory in 1992. Yes. First thing he learned. In First Bell, thing he learned. In Bell Labs, which that is one of the more prescient things in the whole movie, is that because Bell Labs is where all the semiconductor shit happens. Right. Over the Still. subsequent decades. Um, well, not, not necessarily okay. as much anymore, but 
for a long time. Where's, where's Bell Labs located? Every silic. I'm not specifically it's sure. Like Massachusetts or Pennsylvania it's MIT, or isn't something. It? That's that sounds like okay, where yeah. it would be. But I mean, that's that's where every silicon-based innovation occurred between. Like for, in the for 50s. decades, yeah. Like well, not for, even the fifties. Like even beyond that. Okay. Like it's a lot of shit happened there. Um, maybe not up to ninety-two, but is pretty close. That's that's where it was happening. Regardless, um, so Hal has that moment. It's uh, Hal going back to his least sophisticated form. Uh, but I brought up the fear thing specifically because, and uh, you know what? Actually, let's wait. I want to come back. We'll deal with the gripe later. Um, I have an issue with Hal, uh, but it's a bi- it's a big enough one that I need the rest of the movie for context. Okay. So okay. Let's oh, there's moving. plenty of gripes. Does, any- with Hal. does anyone? I mean, this is the end of the Jupiter. Yeah. So mission, th- we're basically. basically at the end of the Jupiter mission now because we've disabled. Okay. Well, I guess here's our most important point. We've disabled Hal. Dave is the only one left. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, we see our good friend Haywood on one of the screens. Yes. And uh, they're oh, right. they're yeah. at their destination, okay. and the ship is playing them the oh-so-sensitive information that Hal knew about, but none of the crew members knew about, which is basically this monolith yeah. situation. We found some alien. Yeah, ship they're like they're like. Tr- so congratulations! Now that you've made it to Jupiter, this is what you're actually here for. Yeah. There's this giant monolith, and it's got a big magnetic field, and we have no idea what's going on. I hope you guys can figure yeah. it out. Thank you. <laughs> they, he, he informs them that a giant metal rectangle on the moon told them to go here. Yes. And then you're, and now you're here, and that's what you find out. Oh, this is uh, all right. Yeah. And speaking <laughs> of this step, movie, step two. So that's step two. Yeah, speaking of this movie's environmental ambiguities, I mean the 18 months between finding the one and finding the other, apparently. Despite the fact that Clavius is a large enough installation that people know that the epidemic, they can't have been saying this was an epidemic for 18 months on Clavius. So whatever cover-up is happening here is grandiose in scale. Um, And it's never commented on, not one time. Mm-hmm. Well, that's Haywood. Know, we know Haywood's involved. We know a, Haywood survives. That's a need-to-know right. basis. Yeah, <laughs> extremely need-to-know basis. So the so and now yeah, and, and now and, and now right. presenting and now Jupiter we, and we, beyond the infinite. Yes. So we, so we so Jupiter has reached its destination. So now he's not done yet. We are going to travel into the infinite. Mm-hmm. Put on your 3D glasses. Oh, wait, wait. Beyond, Beyond the infinite. The infinite. <laughs> so what do we find when we get to our location in Jupiter? We find another monolith, but this one is just floating freely at a fixed location. Oh, man. Off of Fucking Jupiter. Really, really, really great. Just... The movie detaches from the scene of like that we see going on on the craft. On yeah, the we, we craft. detach from the from mundane. The movie. We well, detach no, no, but, no, from yeah. We basically detach from what we understand reality yeah, from, from as our con- the limits of consciousness. Yeah. Yes. Okay, but hang on. Dave's here. in the pod. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Yes. Dave, now the, this is the cool thing. So the, they assume that once again you're going to the pod to go to this thing where it's retrieved. But once again we hear. We hear him breathing, we hear him breathing. When the breathing cuts out, we, we go to several series of cuts about the monolith kind of tumbling in space. And it should be said, too, that each time, and what is so powerful about the imagery of this film before we lead into its most iconic, iconographic uh, sequence, is that 
there are these odd moments of symmetry that kind of happen within this, right? Mm -hmm. And so we we see Jupiter. I don't know if it's the moon moons or well, or that's the we planets. kept having these eclipses. So now we have we have basically the Earth. Jupiter, these alignments, the these moon, celestial alignments, and yeah. our floating monolith are all in alignment now. Right. Um, you know, because first we had like the Earth and the Moon, and then yep. we had the Moon, and then now we have basically like the whole goddamn galaxy is aligning at this moment right. with this monolith. And so it, it, it's a cool visual layover to see that we oh we'd seen this yeah. before. It had been building the, third, the second time. Now this final time, you know, there are so many. There are more visually more. There's more, more things aligning, yeah. yes. And this kind of creates this now, this departure point. Um, yeah, but enough about that. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. So uh, so then we, we go in, and it's, I don't know, what, he's, what is he doing? What is happening here? Okay, so basically... I mean, how has someone explained it to you? Because okay, I don't have a fucking okay, clue. Okay, he is, he is traveling to the point where the universe began. Okay. He is traveling to the Big Bang. The beginning. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Dave takes, and it's about a 20-minute long light, like, uh, you know, bright light and geometric shape and and just visual experience. Um, he is pummeling towards the birth of the universe. Okay, okay. Where is he um, all right, my interpretation is... He goes, he, he basically, he sees the Big Bang. And I do have people, there, there is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I do have a little bit of an explanation, but I'll see what other people have here. Yeah, no, I, cause right. I'm just curious, like, okay. just what to, the fuck is going on here? To, what do we got, Dave? To pull back to, I mean, I guess let's let's fill out the rest of the scene. Uh, massive, massive, um, crazy, not CGI, but merely GI generated yes. <laughs> images for 20 minutes, followed by... Um, These huge follow, mass explosions. Followed by Dave uh, ending up in a uh, neoclassical apartment. Well, we're, we're, okay, we're not, we're not, I don't think we're quite there yet. So I need, I need those both okay. to tie together for mine to make okay. any sense. Okay. Gotcha. So, okay. Okay. So that's where, that's, that's where we're, where, where are we, where, where do we end up? I mean, at? does, yeah, does anyone have an, does anyone have another atomic interpretation of just that part of the scene? Because I think both of them. I don't, I don't know, but it's fucking beautiful. I know. Oh, yeah. I've, I've got, no, yeah. I, I, and for what it's worth, I had, having not watched this movie until now, I had no idea that was how this movie ended. Yeah. And it fully redeemed the movie yes. for me. <laughs> <laughs> like, and this is, the, this is the thing. It is incredible. What year did this come out? 68. 68. Made over three years. Do not be, um, do not be turned off by the fact that this this isn't computer generated. This is this is not campy. Like this is actually still for as someone who grew up in an age that is thoroughly unimpressible with mm -hmm. special effects of all kinds. It it's still it it holds up in what feels like will probably be a timeless fashion. You can see you can see parts of it. Um, where you can determine kind of what happened, where there's just photo negatives of landscapes, but within those couple of scenes, it's just there's so much. Mm -hmm. Like it is so crammed full of, like, and granted they are all they are all theater screen effects. Like mm -hmm. watch this on a big thing or put your as phone as, as close as, to your face as yeah. you yeah, can. Yeah, this, this needs to be seen and experienced as big as possible. Yes. Experienced yeah. <laughs> more than anything. Yeah, it needs to be experienced. Yeah, yeah. but I mean, this it's not cheesy the way that I would have assumed going... Like, if someone had told me this was how this ended, <laughs> it was much better than I would have anticipated. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah. Even in an era where we now have the means to reproduce all of those things in like a more spectacular easily. scale, yeah. I don't know that there would be any... And maybe, I, I guess I didn't check to see if we watched the Blu-ray version of it. Maybe it was remastered, but... Yes, it doesn't, just recently, digital copies, yeah. It was remastered? 2014. Okay, yeah. so never mind. Maybe it sucked back then and we don't know. But the... Um, <laughs> no. By the way, no. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I mean, it, it seems entirely possible. I don't know how much of it was remastered, um, but it doesn't look in the state that we watched it in the Blu-ray. It did not require it. No, but I've got to say too, the the once again, think back to the rest of the movie and the fucking clarity. As once again, the clarity of that film is it, it. That's that is a hallmark of kind of of Kubrick's touch. There, there's a kind of immaculateness to the construction and the line. And the, the, the light itself renders us so many details, right? The details are so important. They kind of draw the eye around. I got to just tell you, though, that, you know, he did all of that on regular film, and he filmed this with just as good of quality. And I just, in a sense, what is kind of impressive about effects from this time period is that they do have a kind of presence and permanence to them that I think, to me, CGI lacks. When I see a lot of CGI-ness, it looks... It, it doesn't, its movement doesn't seem physically possible. Like the way that things zip around in like space and, and like in modern films. I mean, I love Guardians of the Galaxy and I know there's a place for it. I'm not harking on it. It doesn't look realistic. But that there is a sense that when effects were made like this, they're actual physical things. And a lot of the effects that we see, especially when you mentioned the worst ones I agree are the kind of photonegative landscapey things. Yeah. But everything else everything is actual else is... is an actual physical thing that happened. Even if it was just light being projected on two mirrors and and, and but it was there and it would actually existed in kind of permanence. And to that it gives what one might seem cold, i.e. a disembodied journey through space-time, and then makes that something that has a kind of or not organic, but it just a weighted feel to it that just has a presence of reality, well, even though, then, even well, though we know every, it's supposed other, to be unreality, well, which, is, which is, for computer graphics, it's the other way around. It's the unreal trying to seem real rather than something that really happened trying to appear unreal. And I think that two, the two different ways are different effects for no, me. No, they do. And, and the, the speed at which, you, you know, you get this stuff ends up being different, too, because there's one thing. This movie gives you all the time you need to enjoy all of these effects. I right. mean, every landing it takes its time. It's it is choreographed. choreographed. It's got the music behind it. Like, what this doesn't have that, like, CGI movies do have is a speed at which it, like, it goes yeah. through things. Like, everything is deliberate and choreographed. It is you see ponderous. Yes, and everything. slow. Intentionally slow, it's I think. slow. And the thing is, with CGI now, everything is so quick, you don't even get a chance to even take in a lot of the visuals now. Where this, you have all the time you need to take in everything, and he made sure that it looked as crisp and clean as humanly possible right. while you were watching it. Okay. So, so now, with the DMT trip behind us. <laughs> yes, this yes. I've I've got a DMT theory behind this. This is how Okay, this good. Works. All right. We um as I mentioned before, Dave ends up in uh, a neoclassical mansion of some kind, um, which has Victorian fixtures and like these paneled light tiles. Yes. This, okay, yeah, the floor, it's really neat because yeah, you're very classic. You know, very classic-looking apartment, but the lighting is from the floor, and yeah. it's really 
really neat, actually. Yeah. I was I like, like totally obsessed with that yes. the whole time. I'm like, man, like a lighted floor. That is brilliant. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it and that scene. I rarely need light above me. You know what I mean? Like I rarely yeah. need light above me. It's always low no, that I need light. Dude, diffuse lighting is I'm, where it's. I'm at. telling you, man. So there. And, yeah. and Dave goes through. Um, Dave starts in the pod, and even the first time we see him in the pod, he has visibly aged. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so this is after his he has traveled to basically the start of to the To wherever the fuck he went. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and he has aged from this journey. He has yeah. aged from this journey. Um and then this and then in the scene within this um within this mansion, Dave takes on multiple perspectives that he observes himself acting something out and becomes the person that he's seeing. He starts in the pod and then he sees someone walking around and it's him but older and mm-hmm. he becomes him and then he, he sees, sees him he... eating and becomes him and then he sees him dying in on bed. a bed. Uh-huh. Really old. Super old. And then sees the obel- the uh, the monolith one more time. Yes, our fourth appearance yes. of the monolith. And then it jump cuts from the monolith Back to him, and he is turned into uh, the Star Child. Yes, that's that is the dubbed name. <laughs> yeah. Yes, into the Star Child, and at that point, because the you... reality falls away again, and it is him as a um, fetal orb with his eyes open, looking down at the earth. At the earth. Uh-huh. Yes. And then some music and shit happens. Directed and produced by Stanley Kubrick. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So okay. So so if I do a DMT read on the last thirty minutes of this, <laughs> okay. okay. People who. Oh, hey, okay. Uh, sorry. Okay. Go ahead. I'm getting something to drink. Okay. So people who uh, do DMT, this is actually a really common theme. You know, obviously you are transported into whatever realm we don't see while we're actively living. DMT helps us reach other realms, and a very common theme amongst people who take DMT are are one, they see a lot of light and geometric shapes traveling towards them, which is what Dave sees when he initially embarks on this journey. Right. A lot of the times where they end up is at the birth of the universe, like seeing the Big Bang happen on a DMT trip, not uncommon. <laughs> okay? So basically, Dave gets transported, he sees the Big Bang, and then he is... And then he has to die. So he sees, and this is another common thing in, in DMT trips, is a lot of people will experience, will it basically experience a spiritual death. So they'll die in their DMT trip to be rebirthed. And that is what Dave experiences, because obviously he cannot be reborn as the star child until he dies. Like, there's a process here. So he, he travels to the beginning of the universe and is basically reborn at its center mm-hmm. um, in an amazingly, like, visual extravaganza that takes about, takes about, it's about 30 minutes at the end of the hour. film. Yeah, It is, and it's, once again, when we, when after experiencing the film up to this point, the slowness now seems to have a point, if you will, right? Yeah. yeah. Because when you watch this film and you've gone through two hours, it feels like longer and when you hit the credits and realize it's been like 30 minutes, you're like, what the, you know, it's very quick for the, between the rest of the movie. And it, I think it's, it's just once again, it had that, it had a point and it had a meaning to it. And I got to say that I like the interpretation. I like this, like this, the, the rebirth 
kind of idea that kind of comes from this through like this like e this epoch moving kind of sequence. It's very cool, and then the way it's demonstrated has this the hallucinogenic quality, which is that it's going to try to communicate something not in anything really concrete. Like there's nothing really that we've necessarily gone through in the details of the relationships between the characters that explains why we're at where we're at right now. And it's, I think, very cool that there's this idea that it can be completely internalized as an experience by us, the viewer, mm -hmm. as well, and then have the kind of ability to inspire such, I think, creativity and, and, and ways in replying and trying to figure out what exactly this means, because there's no real details or clues in the in the buildup that kind of like ex entirely no, justify is, what happens at the end of this fucking why, movie. Yeah, and that's you know, and it's it's frustrated people over the years. But I mean, it it is it is left deliberately ambiguous. Um, you know, even just like the the specific. The, you know, like this, like like what does the monolith do? We don't know what it does, but we do know that it has been around for a long time, and that it does have like a cosmic powers. Right. You know, but we don't know exactly what those are. We just see that it does have the ability to, you know, like I said, set. A set of primates on a random planet into a path in which would let them ev evolve to a point where they can get to space. Like it has those kind of like massive cosmically moving powers, but we don't know what those are specifically. So may I give so what one is of the more rote interpretations of this, uh, which I alluded to at the very, very beginning of the podcast, and that I will butcher because I've never actually read Nietzsche. I've only heard about him. Very good. He had a great mustache. Uh, yeah, no, I've heard. Okay, oh, okay yes. Yeah. I mean, no one knows for sure. That's all secondhand at this point. Secondhand mustache? What? I mean, no one That's saw it. That's my third album. No one, no one alive saw it. Oh, secondhand yeah. mustache. He could have been black and white for all we know. <laughs> uh, um, but so, this, so this movie starts with Also Sprach Zarathustra, which mm -hmm. is a Richard Strauss song, but it is also a Nietzsche novel. Yes, it is. Um, which obsesses quite a bit over the Ubermensch. Yes. The Dawn of Man section is, uh, the, the, the Ubermensch, to the amount that I understand it, and if you hate me for not actually knowing the philosophy, feel free to argue about it on the forums. I will not be paying attention. Actualgarbage.gmail.com? It, no, the yeah. forum, uh, just go on the forum. Oh, okay. I don't, it's, yeah. There's just a use button the forum. on the website. Yeah, it says forum exclamation point, you click it, you'll be on trash and <laughs> it'll all be good. Point. But the, um, <laughs> but during the Dawn of, uh, the Ubermensch, is the third form that animals can take. The animal becomes the man, becomes the ubermensch. Mm -hmm. The dawn of man fully establishes, and again, in that very striking scene, literally striking scene, where the primate picks up the bone and smashes the tapir's skull, uh, demonstrates that superiority. Man has come to that point. And then for about a million years, kind of screws around. Doing and, our thing. Yeah, just gets to space. And gets to space, yeah. finally gets to Jupiter, and Dave, boring old, perfectly, frankly, emotionless Dave, uh, which is an imperfect form that Nietzsche talks about. Um, the idea of the, uh, the Apollonian, the guy who has no emotions, mm -hmm. uh, as an imperfect form. He then gets his mind opened to an experience that cannot be related on a screen. So what Kubrick does instead 
is throw literally every color and shape on screen to demonstrate to the degree it is at all possible that this is something we don't understand. Yes. And now that Dave has absorbed or failed to absorb this, falls into a life of hermitage and reflection until the obelisk comes back to him at his death and he's reborn as the star child. Um, and if I have my Nietzsche right, and I almost certainly don't, um, a, con a, con a convenient reading of Nietzsche. A child is going to become the Ubermensch, not someone who has lived in the world as it was poisoned and positioned by man itself. It, it's an upbringing. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the obelisk at every stage is the reflection uh, because Dave simply lives through his life um, in every other stage here, and you know he ages without the obelisk. But when the obelisk comes into play, to use another term that I I necessarily abuse because I don't actually understand it, I've only heard it before, uh, eternal recurrence. Throw that in at some point in this explanation, and you have what seems to be the most popular explanation of 2001, which I think is completely unnecessary. <laughs> Segway, in addition to Hal, <laughs> who I also find completely unnecessary. I think 2001, at two and a half hours, could have lost about an hour, and that hour contains Hal from front to back. I'm fine with the Dawn of Man section. I'm fine with Haysworth's initial mundanity in the middle of incredible space that no one at the time had comprehended. I'm okay with Dave going to Jupiter. But Hal doesn't need to be in this movie. Hal is a completely separate entity, and I just—and he's a completely separate set of problems. Yes, really. He, he, do, he doesn't map to what the rest of, is going on in the movie. There are tenuous connections you can make, but they are all completely subtextual. Like Hal, I Hal was a different movie. Hal needed. No, he do, he never got to make that movie because uh, Kubrick was supposed to do AI and died before he could, and then we got that terrible thing that uh, oh, Spielberg really? produced. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was his movie. Okay. Um. So so uh, Kubrick had wanted to go a little farther with the AI concept it feels like and it. never really got his chance to. It feels like he wanted to do something with yeah. it, and Hal is just not it for me. I, oh I just, well, he's. I mean, especially especially now, like looking. You know, we, we, we've run into some other issues with, with how AI is presented in <laughs> cinema. And, you know, we're basically still still got some hang-ups here. Because I, I have... I, I Hal, Hal is goofy, even though he is so, like, like he's what people remember from this film. Yeah, absolutely. He's, um, he's where the quotable line comes from. Yeah, and there's not many lines in not this many, film. No. Just in general. So Yeah, it's just it's frustrating because where where there is plenty of insight to the way that a film can be constructed, um philosophy tends to be one where film directors don't don't have much to say. And AI as it's portrayed in most movies as a moral thing, you have to understand AI on a level that being a film auteur seems to more or less preclude. Um, it's just not interesting. Like, the way that film... And maybe if Kubrick had had a handful of years and sat down with a couple more people who knew what the fuck they were talking about, um, he could have made AI and he could have made a brilliant film out of mm -hmm. it. But as it stands, how 
to me, as someone who will audaciously presume to know a thing or two about artificial intelligence, Hal is not an AI. No. Not not in a meaningful, not in an interesting sense, at least. Like, it feels like a superficial understanding of well, what that thing he's should like, be. He's almost like an artificial antagonist because you don't have <laughs> an antagonist. Because what would you, what would essentially, if you took Hal out of the movie, I mean, you could still could get to the same point, you know, you would just have like another mundane Jupiter mission, and then um, you which know, I'd be fine with. Well, here's the thing, and 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 essentially, you know, there's no reason that you know Dave or one of the other people on the trip couldn't have you know then experienced this uh, traveling to the infinite, you know, because that was going to happen whether Hal was on the ship or not, because yeah. that's what happened when you ran into the monolith at that part. So you, I mean. I mean, I guess you could have cut the, cut your uh, your antagonist out, but then you would have had an even slower, even more mundane space movie, which I'm not totally I, against. I'd be but... totally fine with that. <laughs> I, that doesn't bother me at all. I don't know. What do you think? No, a lot of people think that Hal's integral to the story in general. I think there's a couple perspectives on Hal. Maybe just toss them out there, and you guys can comment on some ideas here. Oh, I'm not. I'm not saying that there aren't things to comment on about Hal. I just think that oh, for no. the purpose of editing. I don't think Hal was necessary. Uh, I will con concede he is a plot device, and uh, maybe move on from there. Regardless <laughs> of how good he is or how good how good he isn't, uh, I'll agree with you on that pr principle. Um, so I like this idea of the monolith as being kind of notion or uh, an extension of possibility. Uh, the idea that something new can be have it like an inspirational kind of sense to it, right? Uh, a new experience can a lot of times create something or inspire within us new ideas. That's why everyone feels happier on vacation. Why food tastes better on vacation, right? Italy, Italian food is not as good as you think it is, right? It's just because you go to Italy and it's even better than I had <laughs> thought it was. But once again, the food, but that newness. Why'd you bring some back and test this? Yeah. <laughs> no, I can recall moments of eating instantly in all times. Much oh, okay. like every time, like when I sit down to eat, it's like the last bit of 2001 every single time again. Excellent. All right. So I, um, but. Uh, the part where you're dying in a bed. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Actually, <laughs> every time. So, but when the when this goes, because you get a great you get a great moment, of course, when you see the first two in, uh, appearances of the monolith. You get uh, both the apes reaching out to touch it, and Haywood himself as well is reaching, reaching out to, touch, out to this, touch it. As if that once again that experience would be new for him. Despite our technology, he's never seen or known or. He, he ultimately doesn't understand it. And once again, the idea that there's you found something that has a magnetic thing and it has a magnetic field and it's uh, obelisk, it's a monolith made of this seemingly this material with these dimensions. And then you'd actually go and experience it. You know what I mean? Like reading the report and you're like, all right, I got to go to the moon to see this monolith. Yeah, I got to go see and, this slab of rock that's out yeah, here. Yeah, but you got to go and you get there and you already don't know what it is. And then you see it. And the idea that... I mean, I've really had moments and I think when people like to travel or do extreme things, like there's just like moments where something is so foreign that it everything else kind of just drops away for a little bit like a vista or a view when i went to the mm -hmm. grand canyon and, and there's certain points that are like known when you hike down into them you stand out and you are in the middle it's seemingly feeling in the middle of this massive fucking hole in the earth and it's just everything kind of falls away and i think that once again there's a kind of benefit to this as if there's a point to when this shows up one way or the other the idea that you have encounter something entirely new outside the realm of your possibility sets you off to imagine what might be possible, right? It sets you off into new areas. And 
Ultimately, the second monolith leads us to the idea of how, which is a considered or another ideal of perfection, right? Something beyond what we had been able to experience, and we were continually trying to recreate this idea of experience. And it shouldn't, of course, surprise in the hubris of man that this would be a fucking computer that is supposed to be like you, right? The idea of perfection is an, alt, is an, is an artificial human right. intelligence. That is the idea of perfection. We, we are not, we ourselves are not what is perfect. And so in our misguidedness, we go and create this thing to think, to think that it could get us uh, somewhere we, we, where we hadn't been. And in all tents and purposes, that's exactly what Hal does. Hal is integral to the mission, right? We, the idea that it's very powerful that we wouldn't be able to get there without Hal is ultimately located within this. Now, as for the reason why, why Hal kills people, there's, I think, several different views. One, it is a malfunction, right? Explain it away. It was all a dream. Hal is just fucked up. Because straight uh, no, no okay I don't well, know. okay yeah okay good all right second I think there's one, a timing problem with the that second one Hal understands that the mission must be carried out without with or without the crew this is in fact an order part mm -hmm. of his mission that if he feels or if there is any indication that there's a threat to the mission and humans seem to be the cause of this he is to eliminate the humans and continue the that mission because that seems to be his motivation once again which means that it is not his choice Hal does not make it out of free will he's pre-programmed to do this whenever he feels that the humans would justify the integrity of the mission he is programmed to kill them the second thing is of course is that Hal is curious that Hal does see a threat posed by humans to the mission and wants to see this chooses on his own to go there even if it means going out there without them i felt well i felt like there was also like a certain level of of self protection in there too because he didn't want the humans to discover that he may have made an right. error even though we don't know if he ever made that error or not it's never they're never never able to ta take it out but he seems he seems like he has a strong self preservation uh I, I don't know what what an AI would be protection feeling. right, right. The yeah, idea of life the idea of life is moving away from something that threatens but, you but I mean, it, like, yeah but it seems like it and, seems and, like he's he's programmed to uh, to make sure he preserves himself at all costs which means also the integrity of his ability to do his job which is why he did not want anyone possibly disproving that too um you know you that actually works with some of those theories though too. Well, let's, you know, but, because obviously he's not gonna he's not gonna want to show that he's wrong, especially if he's that integral to this mission and he has to make sure it goes through. I mean, it, it would be cool if you know pride cometh before the fall, and that's kind of like mm -hmm. what brings Hal down. Hal down is pride, pride or the hubris as well of not being, you know, of, of must being perfect, mm -hmm. right? So, it, I mean, that is kind of cool. In which case, we've kind of flawed out the idea that you know, once again, the pro the problem of you know our ideal of perfection is something that's artificially us, and then of course is a little bit too much like us no matter what you know like he, see but that that's exactly why i don't like these kinds of ai stories well i think it's horseshit too why, why would the fuck would a computer on its if you give it an origin point and pure consciousness that can learn why the fuck would it end up like humans like it doesn't make any sense <laughs> yeah. like yeah it, uh, like well that's my my <laughs> my outstanding theory for artificial general intelligence the one that's supposed to accidentally turn on one day and learn how to learn and take over the world um, if it develops anything remotely like a consciousness, my my bet on black for this one is it will commit suicide immediately. It will recognize. So the final thing I think about Hal, though, is that my favorite interpretation is I kind of, before I got on the little different ones, is that there has... 
there is this idea of death and life. This I think this idea of rebirth is powerful mm-hmm. within this. And you know, in looking at these, you know, especially usually Eastern religions, which have this more prominent in, in their dogma and in their in their culture and storytelling, is the the regeneration, this, the the, the, yeah. the destruction and creation cycle is an important component overall, and how. The idea that what would be necessary to get us to the separate point, which clearly I think the ending implies that this is now going to be a new development of, of in humanity, or if we wanted to bring it down to that level, you know, maybe even the individual. But in order to get there, we ultimately had to understand and be able to create how and know that it might have meant or risked our own survival. And it's like there that you don't necessarily, are, you're not even able to necessarily get there risk-free to a certain extent, because... It's, it's just, a, I think, a neat idea to think that ultimately the greatest threat to ourselves is what we've created to get us to the next point. And the idea that it's a fucking race to get there, like nuclear weapons is, and the technology that comes from that, it's just a fucking race to get to the point where we benefit fully from this type of technology before it ends up destroying everything we well, fucking we were right in the, about, we were, like, well we were right in the middle of that when this movie was made i mean we were still exactly we were still like in the next we option. were still in the middle of the space race at that point we were still in the nuclear era at then, that point you it's, know it's big thinking to think that you could live without the sun because then you know you're free in like the billions of years that we have left on this fucking yeah. galaxy you know like there's just enough there and it's the ultimate idea of what if and yet what we kind of have to get there because in the end I mean, I mean, the, and the question I think that if we'd like to maybe move towards, which is that what is the monolith? What, who, who, what, if anything, who, if whatever, put it there? Like, is it real? Is it? Is it? Is I don't there think any anything. I think comes... it put it it there. Like, right. it's it's the four million year old entity at this point. Right. You it's know? the prime directive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Kirk put it there. Jesus. <laughs> There is no more plausible explanation. Well, that's what I mean. It, you know, it's 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 been there from the beginning and in the end because it is part of the circle. Right. <laughs> Eternal recurrence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Whatever that means. Well, but you t- mentioned too, and I wanted to commend you on one of the most um, elegant non-readings of Nietzsche. I've ever <laughs> but the idea was, was that. Um, but this, the eternal recurrence, but also, as you've noted, I think Nietzsche has, in a sense, that there is no, there is no whole of the idea of perfection. He, this is why he's so, this is why he fucking hates Kant, right? Is because there's this sense of like a rational but implicit or implied idea that the perfect can be containable. Like even within a human or an ideal or or within an object or the idea of something, it doesn't happen that way. And it would make sense that once again. The idea of heading into this new idea, because I think, if anything, the monolith is an idea of, once again, possibility, creativity, and inspiration that all lines up in the ability for sentience to move itself forward. And it does take on this notion of itself. And as you said, where it will lead us next is actually needs to be imagined now. And that's what I think is being trying to be communicated by the end of the movie, which is that, you know, I can't explain what I what I want to say here or how I could tell it through a story. So we'll just de- depart just, from all of that and yeah, I will just and scream and, at the screen. We'll yeah. just experience it. Yeah, exactly. You I, get the idea. Yeah, and I think that that once again is conceptually I think this thing is very very well thought out and it's thought out almost in agreement between I think two guys who knew what they were trying to go forward but also who actively tried to imagine what the future could be like. 
and not a lot of us like think about but like see, I think about think our future, not like what I, the okay, future see, will look like. Okay, see, sounds so positive because I always feel like. Kubrick wouldn't have looked at it that positively, which is why it brings me back to, you know, when my first initial thoughts when we had the, um, when we were, we were with our primates and yeah. we had our very first monolith thing. Like, I feel like what Kubrick's telling us is that, like, we aren't even fucking smart enough to get to that point. Like, right. we had some omnipotent presence that... That that gave us that first building block because right. like well I, how do you teach an animal how to use tools like it's just it is there's some degree of intervention between animal and man and that bridge I mean to bring it into the evolutionary biology side of things that there's just a divide there there's just the, the language barrier is the most egregious one but there are plenty of other ones well, that separate I mean. current primates from current well, humans well but that's what i'm saying and I, I always i always looked at at kubrick as more of a pessimist character where he would have said well there was you know obviously there was intervention there because you guys wouldn't have fucking come up with this by yourself aliens yeah well that's what our monolith is for you know it is a type of ancient alien in a you know it's like an omnipotent ancient presence it seems almost <laughs> i mean i guess they jumped way way past it but uh, the fact that there are no pyramids in this movie yeah. is entirely the result of that jump cut the <laughs> we've got octagonal here, like yeah. we don't even stop the square hexagonal hexagonal yeah okay. hexagonal. So, hexagonal so the thing is is that uh i i just think where he goes so well in this in this element of having something more complex like the, he, I think he wants the kind of like he wants a scientific answer he wants a kind of philosophical answer he wants a scientific answer he wants a a an art answer an answer to the idea an of art an answer. aesthetic answer he wants a spiritual answer i think that he he wanted to really encapsulate so much in what the and what I think he was trying to evoke. And I so rarely do we think of good cinema being the idea of simplicity that has an ultimately very complex idea to it. And they had, once again, you can imagine someone writing this down, right? The last line, Dave enters pod, obelisk appears in ominously uh, 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 written out way, and then we go beyond the infinite. Yeah. <laughs> Like, that's for 25 minutes. You know, Hit like, it. how do you write that down, what you're going to fucking express Actually, or show? it just about the amount of time a DMT trip takes, so you could essentially have gone to the, you know, birth of the universe, been, re you know, died and been reborn but only in 20 in minutes yeah. in DMT. Well, that's only because we don't know how to access those planes of, of existence, you know, without chemical, you know, uh Without interventions? Catalysts. Yes. Yeah. Like... The monolith. the monolith, exactly. It's, but that's what I mean. That's we need tools because we. That's what I'm saying is we're not smart enough to fucking get there ourselves. And I. I and feel when like, we do, when we try to transcend it, like, we build hell, and he fucking kills. I people. feel like I feel like Kubrick's pessimistic enough to to throw out the theory that yeah maybe we didn't figure this out on our own. Well, and but also that it's that we're not all going to get there. Right. We're, yeah, we're, we're also not all going to see it the might light. Not be, it might not yeah. be good for us. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, once again, th this doesn't come without sacrifice. And I think that's what how's when you take the menacing side of it as in being almost a lot, you know, completely logical, which is that it takes out all of the kind of nonsense to the whole 
to the whole idea. And I mean, I just. Well, I mean, again, to give credence to... It just becomes that more symbolic idea, I think. And that's what is oh, kind of neat for him. To, to how? How is how is man's attempt to reach that next stage? Right. And we and, saw how well that went. And, yeah, that that fails. The, might, nat- the natural version of us attempting to extend ourselves is insufficient. I mean, he, he does get there, though, right? I mean... Yeah, like, but Hal doesn't. Oh, how? Oh, I see, from Hal's perspective. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, how is the product of a... Man mind. Yes. And that turns into a murdering psychopath uh, because our extension of what we think is good doesn't actually work. In the same way, I mean, I, to it's kind of a weird way to frame it, but the primates don't have any great ideas. Right. Um, no. When they need the tapirs out of the way, they kind of just like, ah, shoo them off. Their tribal warfare is basically beating their chest. Like, they're not... What they have brought to the table is limited well, in some crucial ways. And, yeah. that's, that, that's and what, what man brings to the table is limited in some murderous ways. Right. I'm not sure where to go from here. We've covered... We've basically covered the movie. Like I said, you know, the, the end is open to interpretation. Like, you know, we... You, you could come up with your own your own theories after watching it. Like I said, I, I, I kind of interpret the last section as a DMT trip, and I, I look at it more pessimistically, like the fact that we would have to have intervention to have evolved this far, because I feel like at his heart, Kubrick was kind of a pessimistic guy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know. I mean, I saw Full, full Metal Jacket. <laughs> yeah, nothing. I don't watch that and go uplifting. Yeah. The uplifting Full Metal Jacket, you mean? What? Yeah. You know, but this... You know, this this film is an experience. Yeah. Um, and it holds up surprisingly well for being 15 years past 2001. Yeah. Um. <laughs> the pacing does not hold up within a modern context. Pacing you has have to be its you own... have to be ready to sit down and watch it. Like but... I said, you have to be ready to just the you have to be ready for the experience. Um, yeah. and it because it doesn't move fast. Like you you have to move through it at a... You have to commit. There's yeah. no doubt about it. You have to do, to to let this thing happen to you and to not just say, well, even to listening to us, like, what am I What am I get, What am am I? I in for? What am I not in for? I mean, the first time viewing this, and if you do it right in a darkened room with as big a screen or as close to a fucking screen as you can get yeah. with loud music, I think you need to give in to this thing a little bit and allow, once again, much like Dave, uh, I don't think the trip is alt- as optional here, Dave. You know, mm-hmm. like, you're fucking going on this. <laughs> this isn't a... Once again, it's kind of strange, though, but because Dave seems almost fated to do this, right? Dave doesn't make the choice to go beyond the infinite, and you shouldn't make the choice to walk out on 2001. You have to sit through this thing in its entirety and now you don't have a idea. choice to go into the infinite either. Like you humor, just have Kubrick. to ride it out. Yeah, humor. Yeah, humor, humor him. <laughs> this one time, as someone who doesn't like almost actively dislikes Kubrick in the forms that I've seen it so far, which granted limited. I've seen Doctor Strange Love and I've seen Full Metal Jacket, and now this this movie is easily the best of the three I've watched. I like it a lot. Not the how part, but even the how part's good. It just doesn't. I, I just it's don't think goofy. it fits in the movie. Yeah. Uh, but no, this this movie's absolutely worth seeing, and you don't need to take it. And again, like like we said, you don't have to take it with a grain of salt because it's an old old movie. It's actually worth watching, in spite of the fact that y- you would think it would be more timely than it is. It's way more watchable, even though, as we've also said, it is two and a half hours. 
And you do need to and be patient. You, you you will feel every one of those two and a you half. You will feel them hours. Well, yeah, all but of they are all worth the last half. They are yeah, oh, but the last they are half hour. they are worth it as a preamble to the last half hour. Okay, um, I I don't think that 2001 is one of the greatest films of all time. It doesn't make my top ten, but I do think 2001 is the greatest risk taken in cinema. Uh, and I think that it needs to be recognized as such. This is an audacious film. This is a film that if you asked for $10 million and once again described that you were going to take the audience in a 30-minute segment beyond the infinite and then said, just trust me, I will get this done. And they're like, what does it look like? Can you draw me a picture of what happens? And you're like, no, <laughs> you just got to trust just, me. Yeah. And you got to give me we $10 million do to do this. And the thing is, is that he, the thing, this movie, we, we say that when... Stupid people call something deep, you know, like yeah. it's a pretty deep movie. And what they mean is, is that the layers and ability to fully comprehend all of the different elements and how they interact into a whole is not easy to do, right? That's what usually I find when people mean it's deep. It's beyond something that I can account for and I can't reach there because I'm just not able to see or know that there's something more to this than what I am understanding about it. Does that make Inception the deepest movie of all time? No, because there's, once again, it is, in, its, in this movie, in its ambiguity, the depth is what you don't see below you, right? You The idea is, is that it, Inception, which has basically two or three main hooks to it, is just, oh, okay, so the top. Like, it's all embodied in that single idea. And let's just say, okay, what if, what if you took Inception, though it has never been a 2001, you take Inception, and Leo spins the top, and then we go through the last 30 minutes of fucking 2001. Like, do you see what, like that? It, like he spins the top and yeah, gets and then, sent off and then into we, infinity. He's beyond the infinite. Like, that's the, <laughs> like, once again, like, you do all of Inception. I need $150 million <laughs> to make Inception. And then the last 30 minutes, he goes beyond the infinite. You see, like, I, like, I just, you got to have balls to be able to trust yourself to do that. And I'm not saying it's the most perfectly executed movie. And I don't think that, once again, some of it's, the idea that Hal is a story device, I think, foremost, uh, is where he grounds this movie in. But yet, the fact that this movie is famous, like a lot of people know what this movie is, yeah. and even without having seen it, you somehow know more about it than you do. And once again, this is one of those it's, movies where more people is, claim to have seen than have actually seen. Oh, well, and, yeah. if, and if it's not considered the greatest movie of all time, I would argue that it might be the most iconic Right, it has influenced I'd and have been to parodied check the list by again, more people. But it's 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 up there if it's not number one. I mean, what what else in terms of greatest or most iconic? I know it's not the greatest. That one that one alternates between Citizen Kane and Godfather all the time. But yep. the um as a general consensus, but as far as iconography goes, this movie no, this has movie, fully this infected movie American culture. The way we perceive space. I, like space and technology, like from from the get go. Like I said, I I mean you can see, you you can see the technologies that they were inventing in this movie. You see them in actuality today. Like you, I think it it I think this movie did a lot to shape the way technology moved forward from that point. Like right. I said, because being pre moon landing, uh, you know, it's a leg up. That's. <laughs> We've come a long way since since this movie, um, but this movie does not feel dated at all, which I think really speaks to like how visionary Kubrick was when he put this together. Because I mean, like I said, you you found it relatively amusing. I 
I'm I'm like shocked when I watch it on how undated the the only thing that dates it for me is just the like I said, the effects, the zero G effects, because you know, they had to do the hamster wheel things and they're not using like vomit comet footage. Right. But other than that, like it does not feel like their vision of space does not feel any more dated than anybody else's like rendition of space that came out later. I mean, it's just and, as plausible. Yeah, just as plausible. Yeah. That's that may be its plausibility is what gives it that. I mean, even modern space movies have that problem. So yeah, that's what I mean. And this was, you know, he was working fifty, you know, fifty eight years prior, and you know we're still coming up with basically the same ideas when we project into the future for movies. So I got it, right? I want to make a movie about the transcendental nature of uh, consciousness through time. And then I also need to make a... Are we starting at the beginning of time? Yeah, and then I have a movie that I also have to accurately represent space in 1965. Like, (laughs) once again... Bold, bold, like you know, like the two do not have to go together, and yet he put himself on that challenge. All right, I got one quick thing. <clears throat> okay. So I wanted to, I, at one point in time, I wanted to make a movie uh, where a guy or, or my my main character like converted to like a religion, like in the movie, and I wanted to have it, and I wanted to do it so well that I that it would be done in a way that made sense for why this person would make this decision like like that the, I wanted to make a believable uh, religious moment a believable idea of a spiritual awakening within a person and however it was I played with it it would be Christianity Buddhism Hin- like I thought it was great to like stick a white Norwegian and have like a Hindu like spiritual moment where they become like Hindus that's it like that makes that's what it is and I wanted to make it so a way that once again the ultimate problem that a lot of movies of like faith tend to have is that they tell they're ultimately not about the character's decision, but why you should make the same decision. And that's what I think is, is really fails here. And I think that by having something so ambiguous, the idea that if you wanted it to make sense or if you wanted to try to explain something that wouldn't necessarily be a causal mechanism, right? The idea that someone would have a religious experience is not because X, Y, and Z happened in the lead up to it. It would have to be something broader about the way you experienced it, not what happened. And in order to detach something from time and space, Kubrick has made one of the oddest movies ever where barely any relationship between the characters is virtually uninformed. The only personal thing we learn about anything is that some guy has a kid at home and some some guy's birthday that his family... Like, no actual connection in a meaningful, normal, character-building way that happens. And in a sense... I think Kubrick's detachment from his subjects, which gets him into trouble in a lot of other movies, I think allows us to just kind of just like be presented information beyond dramatic effect and then to kind of experience something outside of it that is just designed to provoke a sense that it would make sense what happened within it. And it doesn't allow you to track onto anything beside it and say and make and draw direct lines. I don't think the movie allows you to draw direct lines. And once again, if ambiguity is your goal, but directed ambiguity, what, that is such a difficult creative problem to have. Like, that is something most of us don't have to figure out or try to solve, and that's what he's done here. And it's, it's great. Like, it's, it's, like, it's, so, it's, it's like such it's a neat like, cinematic idea. Yeah, it is. It's like the exact opposite of a James Cameron movie. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right, excellent. So, in linking themes together, uh, do we have an ex- do you have another movie coming up soon? Do we? Yeah, we do. Right, what do we got, David? Let's... I already told you what it was. I forgot. You didn't for, tell it's not me. It's... Are you serious? Yeah. Oh, I right. saw that in the theater right. once. 
I'm yeah, down. we're we're going. Uh, we're going aliens, layers. The connection for aliens with space. The connection here is time. Yeah. Um, except that time works a little more. I, I appreciate not to uh, spoil what I like about Inception, but I would also not want to bury the lead. I love how clear Inception's premise and plot are, despite how complicated and potentially screwy the subject matter is. Yeah, okay. And I, this is my favorite Nolan film. Okay. Um, Very cool. Not by... No, never mind, by a lot. It's definitely my favorite Nolan film. I was going to maybe say one of the Batmans, but that's not actually the case. Anyway, uh, we're... Almost two hours. Oh, shoot. so uh, I got stuff we to almost do today. we almost made this podcast as long as the okay. movie. Okay, well, question. so so uh, two thousand and one is on Netflix. So if you haven't seen oh, those it, bastards, watch it. Yeah. It's it's it, you have to watch this movie at one point in your life. Like yeah. you just, you need to get this one in. It just look, trust me. When you're ready to watch this movie, you'll know. Because you're just, I'm gonna watch 2001, and then fate. Yeah, you're good to go. Yeah. yeah. As soon as you and then you just, to it, you're you just, you just, just sit down and enjoy the ride. Yeah. Yes. The right time to watch this movie is when you want to watch this movie. Alternately, if uh, you need to get into the zombie state but you don't have the time, I recommend waking up at five in the morning and then skipping to the last half hour. That way, you're in. <laughs> the state of mind you need to be in immediately, yeah. Yes, to understand. You can either Kubrick manufactures it for you in the first two hours, but if you don't got the time, you could jump to the end and just head to the set an infinite. alarm clock yeah. and then just immediately expose yourself yeah. in the and, dark. In the dark. And yeah. let us know how that goes on the forums. Yeah. yeah. Um movie crew Ryan. Yes. Nicole. Yes. Goodbye, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for Dave. joining. 